Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seven seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. This is God's word. All right, I am to uh, dismiss the kids, but before you go, let me pray. God, I thank you that um, we're invited into this fantastic picture of the throne room where you are on the throne and where you are given worship and praise. Some of what we've been trying to join in with this morning. So thank you for that. And as we continue to, to pay attention to these images and these words, and as the kids go and pay attention to their own uh, learnings, God, may you continue to form and shape us to be your people. I give you thanks for this gathered community and that you, God, are in our midst. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Amen. All right, so kids, uh, you are, may head out somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where. Just go out that door. Someone will show you. Junior hires, I believe there's a class. Is that right, Matt? There is? There is not. Okay. <laughs> you think Matt and I never talk. <laughs> it's not true. Um, so if you have been uh, around for the last few weeks, and uh, you will know that we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, which is not uh, for the faint of heart. Uh, If you haven't been around, perhaps the songs we sang this morning or the scripture might have alerted you to this fact that we are uh, trying to pay attention to this, this last book of the Bible and what it is saying. I made a statement very early on in this, well, actually the very first statement I made, in this series that suggested that the book of Revelation is an essential text, maybe the essential text for us to be reading right now. And not because I think it maps out sort of in chronological specific order how the end of the world is coming, though you might feel it that way, Uh, more that there's some other things we need to pay attention to. So we're halfway through our series. Some of you have been here all along. Some of you have been able to link in a few few of those times, and perhaps you're kind of wondering where we are. So let me, um, I'm going to have a cup of tea, and let me bring you along uh, just in the next five minutes, let me give you some summary of where we've been. Just Let's just pause, take our breath, get caught up to what we've been talking about in the book of Revelation. So uh, off the bat, I suggested, uh, well, it's not me suggesting, the book of Revelation itself suggests that it is three different types of literature bound into one. It's uh, genre would be the fancy word for that, the French word. Uh, It is an apocalypse. It's apocalyptic literature. Now, for us, apocalypse means like big meteorite coming to earth and it's going to, you know, movie 2012. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's not that good. Save yourself two hours. Um, But this meteorite hits the world and it causes great devastation. And that's kind of what we think of when we think apocalypse. But the Greek word actually means sort of like a pulling away the veil. You see the curtain there, right? They're pulling away the curtain so you can look behind. That's why the book in English is called Revelation. It is revealing things to us. So we want to pay attention. It's a particular type of literature that's highly symbolic, and it's inviting us to pay attention to things as they really are. We kind of peer behind the surface of things and see. Uh, John also identifies revelation as prophecy. And again, in English, we tend to think of prophecy as sort of predicting future events. And that's flavored how we've read the book of Revelation. But in the biblical tradition, like so you think Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and these various prophets, the writing prophets in the Bible, prophecy is more, far more about God speaking into a specific situation and calling the people of God to return to God, to be faithful to the relationship they have with Him. So John is writing in this vein. He's writing a message to churches, inviting them and challenging them and reminding them to be faithful, to return to their relationship, right? So it's, that's his primary purpose, or at least one of his primary purposes, not a set of predictions for how the end of the world will unfold. The third thing I suggested, and the the book itself suggests, is that this is a letter. And this is easy to miss. 
uh, that we get so caught up in the imagery and we kind of get a little lost in it. And we forget that this is a letter written by John the Elder to churches, seven of them actually, in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. And you can kind of, you can trace it. It's a little loop, likely a circular letter that would have gone from church to church. And he's just concerned. As these Christians are living in the Roman Empire, which is very difficult, uh, how will they live? And how will they live well? How will they live faithfully to Jesus? So he is writing a pastoral letter. A strange pastoral letter, to be sure, but a pastoral letter. Don't miss that. We talked a little bit about how these are the, the, the initial recipients would have been people living in the Roman Empire. We don't know. Uh, most of us probably haven't studied the Roman Empire. I have only little bits and pieces. But uh, suffice to say that the Roman Empire was not an easy place to be a Christian. Okay? They were surrounded by forces, ideologies, ways of thinking, and images that made following Jesus difficult. But although there were external pressures and challenges, and that was certainly real, and John's encouraging them to remain faithful despite those external challenges, it turns out that John's bigger concern is internal challenges. He's concerned that Christians don't compromise with the empire and give in to the ways of thinking of the empire and just sort of find themselves at home in the empire. And he's concerned that they're becoming complacent, that they're losing their passion for Jesus, for following the Lamb. And those are major threads in the letters that he addresses to the seven churches. I already told you that this is, um, these are letters written um, to, to churches who are living in the Roman Empire. They are surrounded by imagery and images of Rome, and they're seduced by these images. And John is writing a letter to encourage him to remain faithful to Jesus, and the way he does that is he provides counter-images. Okay, so instead of images of the Roman Empire and violence and military power and Caesar, he provides different images. This book is full of images, and it's deliberate because he's countering Roman imagery. And in particular, the images we looked at very briefly last week, the image of the throne. There is a throne in heaven, and there is one sitting upon that throne, God. And there is a lamb looking as if it has been slain. I loved uh, Stan's, your, your, the, the translation, the English translation you read from uh, talked about a slaughtered lamb. It's a little bit more of a vivid image. <laughs> it's a slaughtered lamb. And these become uh, very important images in the book of Revelation as we continue to unpack the imagery of this book. But pay attention and don't lose sight of the fact that he invites us to, to remember there is a throne and there's one sitting on it, and it's not Caesar, right? This is a counter image. And there is a lamb, and he has been slain. He's been slaughtered, okay? Now, if you're reading along in the, uh, the Varsity Bible reading plan that we've put online that sort of comes alongside these sermons, uh, you'll be reading in the book of Ezekiel, which is it's kind of an odd book, to be honest. Lots of strange stuff going on in Ezekiel as well. But I think the reason we've put that as a, as a side reading uh, to these sermon series is because the imagery in Ezekiel gets picked up by John, right? All kinds of imagery. John has, uh, Ezekiel also has a vision of the heavenly throne room, and you're like, what? But you can see the imagery in Ezekiel gets picked up in Revelation. 
And, and I said earlier in this sermon series that you want to pay attention to the Old Testament references. Uh, Daryl Johnson, who's a smarter dude than I am, he says there's over 500 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So that should clue us in, like, ah, oh, pay attention. What did those images mean in the Old Testament? And John is likely carrying some of those, those, those meanings into his letter, okay? So that just brings you up to speed kind of where we've been. But I hope you're beginning to see why this letter, why this book, Revelation, is such an essential text for us, okay? It is, we also live in a time, uh, a culture, and a time in that culture where it's very difficult to be Christian, okay? We're not, you know, getting shot, to be sure. We're not being thrown in jail, for the most part, like some Christians in other parts of the world are. But make no mistake, this is a difficult time to live as a Christian. Okay, we are also surrounded by ideologies, ways of thinking, and images that stand in opposition to the Lamb. Okay, they are just absolutely in opposition to who God is and what God intends. And we swim in that water. We sometimes don't even realize it. Okay, I talked some sermons ago just briefly about the whole way that our culture portrays beauty. And uh, in, in advertising, you get these glossy images of really good-looking people, and they're all photoshopped, by the way. They're not real images. Okay, but it pre- pre- presents beauty in a very particular way. And it's on a glossy page, and it looks really good, but it is highly damaging. It's not at all how the Bible talks about beauty at all actually or think about this one this will be controversial in our culture we we are living with a definition of freedom this is a this is a very current conversation in our culture right now and you know it it is it is it filtered out into how people are are responding to the pandemic and what what uh, health measures they want to pay attention to and whether they get vaccinated or not um, and, and if you listen to the conversation around freedom, it sort of begins to come, sort of circle around to, well, I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me what to do. And that's our culture's definition of freedom. Do whatever you want. And I'm going to tell you flat out, that's a lie. Okay, that is not the biblical definition of freedom. The Bible actually says you don't belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. And we are to live in response to Jesus. You can't do whatever you want. Do you see how different that is than the ideology of our culture? We're to live in response to and in service to and in worship to the Lamb. And this is very different than saying, I can do whatever I want. These are counter-ideologies. Okay, and it's very difficult in our culture to be a Christian because we get caught up in these ideologies. This is, this is the world I've grown up in. This is the only water, the only Kool-Aid I've drank, if you know that reference. And Revelation invites us to see, to pull back the veil and to see what's really going on. And Revelation calls us to follow 
the Lamb who was slain. Or actually, in the language of Revelation, it's to worship the Lamb who was slain. To worship and to follow are almost synonymous in Revelation. And they're words of allegiance. And we're, we're challenged as we hear this word in our time, what does it mean to follow or worship the lamb who was slain? So this is where we are. We're now going to move into the, the second part of Revelation, I'll call it. It's the much larger part. And the part that most churches sort of stop, like we kind of, they preach chapters one, two, and three, the letters to the churches, because they're somewhat understandable. And, and then we kind of, you know, maybe get into chapter 4 and 5, but then after that it gets kind of stranger, I'm going to say, and it gets harder to understand, and we're going to just sort of wade ourselves into this, and we're going to spend the next four weeks sort of unpacking uh, the, the more uh, fantastical visions that John has in Revelation, and what do they mean? I'm going to try and take a stab at this. So, in chapter 5... We get introduced to a scroll, okay? And this, Janice Wong made this beautiful scroll with seven seals. And the scroll is held out by God on the throne, and and they're waiting for someone to break the seals on the scroll, and nobody steps up, and John weeps because he gets a sense that whatever's on the scroll, this, this important event that could take place can't take place. Everything grinds to a halt. We talked about this briefly last week. And then one steps forward who is worthy. We sang this this morning. Who is worthy? Well, Jesus is worthy. The Lamb steps forward. He is worthy to open the seals of the scroll. Now, I want to say um, four broad things about the scroll, okay? It's going to sort of take us forward into Revelation quite a bit, and then we'll pull back. We're going to jump around a bit. I will just itemize them so you can, if you're taking notes or if you're sort of those sequential logical people, I'll say point one, point two, and you'll try and track with me a little bit. Uh, we're jumping around a little bit, okay? There's lots going on here. Let me say a few things about the scroll and the sequence of events that come after it. Okay, so first heading, sequence, Okay. The scroll needs to be opened for the purposes of God to be revealed. Like you, everything just grinds to a halt until the scroll is open. And if the scroll is not opened, whatever God desires to happen doesn't happen. But Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. We'll get into that in a moment. But I want you to just notice the sequence that happens when the scroll opens, okay? So there's seven seals, right? Uh, seven is a symbolic number in Revelation, uh, likely, well, likely, it does mean completeness, perfection, so there's, this is a, sort of, it's completely sealed, and Jesus is worthy to open those seals, and notice what happens, so there's going to be a series of sevens, seven seals, then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls, and they all sort of um, start describing various judgments that'll come upon the earth. Now, the seven seals, they get opened in quick succession, but seal number seven is the seven trumpets. And then the trumpets are sounded, and trumpet number seven is the seven bowls, like they're couched or nested in each other. So the seals uh, include the trumpets, which include the bowls. Okay, if you read that, it's just sequenced out that way. 
that when he opens the seventh seal, the trumpets appear. When he opens the seventh trumpet is sounded, the bowls appear. Um, what you'll notice, though, as you pay attention to those, whether they're sequential or whether they are actually saying the same thing kind of in a cyclical way, what you'll notice is that the judgments, and more on this in a moment too, but the judgments are going to increase in intensity. So the judgments attached to the seals get more intense when their judgments attached to the trumpets that get even more attached or in, intense when they're attached to the bowls. Okay? There's an intensity of... Ju- in, the judgment gets worse. Okay? Just notice that. The other thing you might want to notice in the way that John has put this together, it's revealed to him, is that the seventh... After the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl, there's, there's a very short verse or paragraph that's repeated every time. It ends in the same place. The paragraph is this, and, uh, or the statement is this, and I'm just reading it after the seventh seal. Then the angel took a censer, filled it with fire from the altar, hurled it on the earth, and this is the piece that repeats, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So at the end of a cycle of seven, there's thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. And then there's trumpets, and at the end of that cycle of seven, there's thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. You'll see that repeated. And all of these are going to be literary clues, okay, that I'm going to suggest to you that I don't think John is laying this out or it's been revealed to him in a strictly chronological, sequential way. There's so much going on here that sort of you begin to think he wants us to read it thematically, and pay attention to the themes rather than trying to figure out the chronology. Okay, so that's just my first broad statement about sort of the sequence of action as it's going to unfold in Revelation. Um, and, and you'll know after three, four weeks now that I'm pushing back quite a bit on reading Revelation as a clear timeline of end times. Okay, I don't think it's the most helpful way to read Revelation at all. Now, the second thing I want to say about the seals and the breaking of the seals and the scroll, really, is that all of this set of motion that I've just described, the seals giving way to the trumpets, the give way to the bowls, um, and all of that um, series of events gets set in motion by a lamb who was slain. And this is right out of the text that Stan had read in chapter 5. Let me reread it. Uh, Verses 9 and 10. And they sang, so the, after the, uh, the lamb get, takes the scroll, they, the, mm, back up a bit, um, the, four, uh, the 24 elders and the living creatures, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, this thing, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. Now notice that, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he was slain, not because he created the universe, which he did, not because he rose again, which he did, but because he was slain. Now, it turns out this whole chain of events that's going to unfold in Revelation and all of what it means is set in motion because Jesus won the victory over sin and evil by his sacrificial death on the cross. So I went to a movie the other day. I actually went to a theater. Um, it's sort of an odd experience. But um, I went with some high school friends. I really like these guys, and I just want to hang out with them. I went to see the movie Dune. You can ask me about it later if you care. Um, 
But we went to the movie Dune, and I, I, I met with these guys earlier, and we spent some time visiting. And I, these are good friends of mine, okay? I've known them for like 30 years. And uh, we're, we chat about all kinds of things, but it's one thing that struck me as I visit with them, and then I come home, and I think about them and what they're into and thinking about, is we, they really don't think a lot about spiritual things. It does come up in our conversation, but they're really not thinking about Jesus at all, and certainly not about his crucifixion. And in that sense, they're no different than most of the people in, in culture that live around me, the neighbors on my street. Like, we talk here and there, and we have conversations, but unless I am very deliberate, like the conversation of Jesus and his death doesn't really come up, but according to Revelation, it is the turning point in human history, right? We talked about the TSN turning point. That's still a thing. Well, this is, you know, the Revelation turning point. The lamb was slain. It is the most significant event in human history. And John is reminding his early hearers, don't lose sight of this. Okay, there's lots of imagery in Roman culture that beats this belief out of you. And there's lots of things in our culture that beat this belief out of us. But don't lose sight that the most significant thing that's ever happened in human history is that Jesus hung on a cross and through his sacrificial death, the song goes on to say, Because you were slain with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you've made them be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Jesus' death sets, uh, allows him to open this scroll that sets all of the rest of the events of history into motion. Okay, this is the central point. This is what, in a different letter in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, when Paul is writing to uh, the Corinthian church. He's using less imagery here, but he's saying the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, and I'll just read a couple verses from this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Okay, it's He's contrasting God's foolishness and human wisdom, right? The Jews demand signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach this. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, do you catch that? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, go back to Revelation Chapter 5, and when the lamb is, when John sees the lamb, he says, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns, seven, the number of completeness, horn, the symbol for power. So Jesus has complete power. Seven again, number of completeness, eyes, the symbol for wisdom and knowledge and insight. Jesus has complete wisdom. The very thing Paul says in Corinthians about Jesus Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, this is so key that we don't lose sight of this. Because the vast majority of people living in the culture around me don't think about this. They don't think this matters at all. And John is reminding us this is so central. 
Let me give you another, I'm going to just drive this home, but it's a story. So this is Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Um, huge spoiler if you've never read the book, sorry, but Aslan is a lion, he's a Christ figure in the story, and he gives, at, it's hard to get a quick summary, but he gives him his, he trades his life, he exchanges life for Edmund, who's a boy in the story who makes some very bad decisions, and gets caught by the White Witch, who is a devil figure in the story. And what then transpires is that Aslan goes to his death. That's the price that he paid for the exchange. And this is what the White Witch says to Aslan right before she kills him. Just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who, is, uh, who has won? Fool! Did you think that by all of this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, and so the deeper magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever, and you have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. And then she kills Aslan. But if you know the story, she couldn't have been more wrong. What she thought was victory was actually her defeat. Okay? Jesus on the cross was not a defeat. It was a victory. Right? Revelation invites you to pull back the veil and see things not as they appear to be, but as they really are. Okay. Second, that was my second longish point. Okay, we've talked about the sequence of these judgments and how they kind of nest in each other and get more intense and all of that. We're going to talk about how it's all set in motion by Jesus. And in particular, his crucifixion and the victory he won there. Let's talk briefly about then, as the seals get opened, they reveal judgments. And, and then when you get to the trumpets, they reveal more judgments and the bowls even more judgments. And they don't quite correlate, I would say. I wouldn't say that, you know, seal one is trumpet one, is bowl one. It's, I find that a little bit hard to all sequence and figure out. But what I'd rather you notice, again, pay attention to the Old Testament story, as you look at the, and, and hear the judgments, you should see uh, or be reminded of the plagues in the Exodus story. There's a number of judgments that correlate to the plagues in Exodus uh, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and all these um, plagues uh, come upon Egypt, okay? And uh, I, haven't, uh, I haven't watched this movie, Exodus, I, I don't even, so I'm not endorsing the movie, but I do like the movie poster. I don't know if it was up there. Um, but it, it says, Exodus, Gods and Kings. Uh, and Exodus really is a story of, of God challenging the idolatry of the empire. And many of the plagues actually uh, counter the religious thinking of the Egyptians and who they thought had power and who was in charge. 
And if you go to the book of Exodus, which I will read just one, two verses from, this is what um, Moses says at one point. Actually, the Lord says to Moses, excuse me. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is representative of the gods and the empire and the, this whole systemic oppression that, uh, the, that the Israelites are encountering. Confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is, one, there, there is no one like me in all the earth. Okay, so the plagues confront Pharaoh in such a way uh, that, that he would know that there is, there is a God and it's not him or it's not the Egyptian gods and all of that stuff, but there is a God who is in control. And he's calling his people out to worship. This, this is a central theme in Revelation, that God is calling us to worship, that we be freed from the ideologies of our age so that we can worship and follow the Lamb who was slain. Do you see how these correlations are beginning to sort of come up between Old Testament stories and the Revelation? Okay, notice that the plagues... Um, are not uh, the plagues in Egypt now? If we go back, sorry, I'm jumping between stories, but the plagues in Egypt were not indiscriminate. By that I mean they didn't affect everybody. They were plagues that were directed against the powers that were aligned against God. So, particularly the last plagues, and the last one in particular, the plague of the, the death of the firstborn, affected only the Egyptians, not the people of God, who were marked. We'll get into that next week. But they were sealed. They were, they were protected. And this is how the plagues will play out in the book of Revelation as well. They are uh, judgments that are addressed to those who stand against the Lamb, those who stand with the beast, those who stand with the empire. Okay? Now, in the Remember that John is writing out of the tradition of the prophets, and the prophets have all kinds of judgments going on. If you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those guys, lots and lots of judgments going on. But don't forget the point of the judgments. The point of the judgments is so that people will return to God. God is, this is, I read this this week as I'm reading through Ezekiel. I was reminded of this. It's a great verse. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, okay? I'm not trying to just pull a verse out, but I am pulling a verse out. Um, God speaking to the prophet, Ezekiel, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? It's a rhetorical question. Does God take pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, no. That's not what God desires. What God longs for is that people will return to him. To renounce sin, renounce evil, uh, and turn toward him. That's what the prophets were trying to get at. That's what the judgments of the prophets were trying to get at. That's what the judgments 
If you read them in Revelation, it'll, there's little summary statements that'll say, and, nobody, and the people did not repent, and the people did not repent. But what God is trying to help people do is repent, come back to Him. He's not wanting to destroy. He's wanting to draw people back to Himself. Okay, so don't lose sight of that in the book of Revelation. That is still going on. Okay, so these are sort of three points that I'm sort of, and we'll get to the last one and then I'll wrap up. Uh, That is the wrap up, the fourth one. There's a sequence of events that will take place that I think is thematic. Pay attention to the themes. Okay, that sequence of events is put into motion by a lamb who was slain. That that is actually a central event and Jesus is the central person in human history. Okay, he's not incidental. And then uh, part of what happens when the seals get broken and God's purposes uh, move forward is there's all these judgments that take place. But the purpose of the judgments is not destruction, primarily. The purpose of the judgments is repentance. God wants people to return. Another way, actually, of viewing those judgments is, is not necessarily they're, they're sort of caused by God in sort of this you know, really static causal sort of relationship. Um, but more is, this is just simply how history is going to unfold. As God's kingdom breaks in, there is going to be opposition to that kingdom because there are powers in the world that are in opposition to God. Okay, we'll unpack that in the coming weeks as well. The enemies of the lamb, the dragon, Satan. Okay, there are powers in this world that oppose what God is doing. And so when God's purposes, as the scroll gets opened, when God's purposes start moving forward, there is going to be opposition. And so that's another way of reading that. Okay, sequence, lamb who was slain, um, judgments, last thing is content. What does this scroll say? And we, this is... (laughs) I'll fully readily admit this to you. I had always assumed that the breaking of the scroll, the seals, that was what the scroll was saying. Seal one, it was this judgment, seal two, this judgment, seal, and that's the content. But that's not, like, that'd be a weird scroll, right? If I broke these seals and the, the content of the scroll is the, is the seal, that'd be weird. The content of the scroll is the content of the scroll. Like, once the seals are broken, you open the scroll. Now, Here I just need to quickly, and I will do it quickly in two sentences, um, the narrative arc, the story arc of the book of Revelation. And it's important we don't lose this either. Um, But really the story arc of the book of Revelation is that God is reclaiming his creation from an enemy or from a usurper. Okay, someone has taken over God's creation who shouldn't be in charge. Okay, the Bible identifies that person as Satan and evil, and sin, and it has destroyed, and distorted, and and polluted God's good creation, and the story arc of Revelation is really the story arc of Scripture, and God is coming to reclaim His creation, so in Revelation 21, there's a new heaven, and a new earth, and the old order of things has been, has passed away, and God says, I'm making everything new again, everything whole, okay, it's going to be recreated, a new creation, Now, quick aside, uh, in a nutshell, that's the Lion King, by the way. Okay, so go watch the Lion King. The Lion King is, the Pride Lands is ruled by Mufasa, that guy, big lion. 
right? And it's good and everything works and in its proper order, but then a usurper comes in and takes over, right? Scar. And he ruins the pride lands until the rightful heir comes back to take what is his own. Okay, that's the gospel story. I'm not saying everything in The Lion King is an exact match, right? I'm just... but, but really, it's the same story arc, and you shouldn't be surprised to find it in movies and literature because it's a human longing. Friends, it's what we long for. We long for God to come and make it all good again. Your life, my life, our world, our culture, our families. It's so broken. It's so distorted in places. It's hard to even see goodness sometimes. But the book of Revelation is a reminder that where the story's going is God is making it good. And the content of the scroll reveals how we as Christians participate in God's working, okay? That'll come out in chapter 10. Uh, I'll just give you a a primer because we're going to spend the next two weeks unfolding that, unpacking that. It's such an important point. So in chapter 10 in Revelation, there's um, there's a voice that I heard from heaven. He spoke to me once more. Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So now we have a scroll that's open. So the seals have been broken, but now we have a, and so we have an open scroll. And there's debate in, among scholars. The Greek word's a little different, okay? Scroll in chapter 5 and scroll in chapter 10, slightly different Greek word. But I... I think there's enough clues in this, that it's the same scroll. Um, and it's an open scroll, and John is told to go take it. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He gave it to me and said, take and eat it. It will turn sour, uh, to your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it, and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, and when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour, and then I was told, you must prophesy again about the many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So Ezekiel, by the way, is also told to eat a scroll. Right? You see the, the, the commonalities here. Now, eating a scroll, you think, oh, how am I going to eat this? Right? It's not going to taste good. It's going to, you know, lots of water or whatever to wash it down. Uh, figurative, folks. Figurative. Right? Symbolic. Eating a scroll is like digesting. It's, it's taking it in, taking the contents of the scroll in, meditating on it, reading it, absorbing it. Let it penetrate your inner being. And then what he's told to do is prophesy, give the message uh, about the nations and the peoples and the languages. And what will um, come out in chapter 11 in particular uh, is, is how the people of God participate in the purpose of God, which is the coming of God's kingdom. Okay, so as God moves the story forward, God's kingdom is coming. Okay, it is breaking in. Or in the words of Jesus, God's kingdom is at hand. It is near. The scroll reveals how the people of God participate. How you, you, living in Calgary, in the end of October 2021, how you participate in the coming 
of God's kingdom. Okay, it's going to be well worth paying attention to. And I'm out of time, but it's, it's, it really is lots to unpack there too. So themes are there we'll unpack. We're going to unpack how we participate. We're going to unpack who the enemies are that, that will, will actually be opposed to, to God's purposes. And we're going to still unpack where the whole story is going to end. So there's lots really to pay attention to still in the book of Revelation. But I hope this sort of moves us forward in the story a little bit. Okay, here's what I want you to walk away from this morning. Be encouraged, friends. I know this has been long, sorry. Really long as I'm looking at the time. I'm very sorry. Um, There's lots going on. The kingdom of God is coming. It is coming. But we can expect, you should anticipate opposition to God's kingdom coming. Okay, some of that is going to be natural opposition, like you get sick. You die. People you love die or get sick or get hurt, right? In Revelation, that's talked about the old order of things. God is going to wipe that away, wipe tears from your eyes and reverse that old order of things. Some of the opposition you'll face will be human, quote-unquote human opposition. It'll be ideologies and ways of thinking and imagery that is counter to life with the Lamb. But we can expect opposition, to God's kingdom breaking in. But hear this, friends. This is from a quote from Daryl Johnson. I'll leave it here and I'll pray and I'll hand over to Sherry as we then uh, partake in communion. This is what Daryl Johnson says. The lamb, remember the lamb is already on the throne. And so we as the church, we enter the battle with evil not in order to win, but because Jesus Christ has already Do you hear that difference? We don't enter into life, we don't encounter life and all of the challenges to try and win something. The battle has already been won in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that Jesus is with you. Let me pray. God, I thank you for for this um, reminder in Revelation, all of the imagery, all of the, the, um, the pictures that, that John is using, that you're revealing to him, that uh, you are now speaking to us. Uh, give us eyes to see. Help us to be caught up by this, to have our imaginations reignited by you. so we can continue to ponder what it means to follow you, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. God, I know there was lots going on this morning. I just pray that that you, by your Spirit, would take some of these words, some of these songs, just something, and plant it in us. And let it grow. Thank you for this community. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.